0: Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face to face, if not on Zoom, we hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. We began exploring this avalanche of change that is cascading upon our moment in history. There is going on around us a fundamental upending of all kinds of things, some of them very practical, like how we buy and sell, how we employ, how we work, how we learn. But also, the curtain is being pulled back on our society, on the parts of the society that are broken. Uh, Parts that have stayed hidden for a long, long time that can no longer stay hidden. I use a word last week several times, unsustainable. Essential workers unable to pay for a basic living, that's unsustainable, can't go on. Consistently defunding education as a percentage of GDP for six straight decades, that's unsustainable, it can't go on. Inequity, racial inequity and gender inequity and uh, economic uh, inequity, these things are unsustainable. And what unsustainable means is that things are going to break. Things are going to have to change. And history would suggest that we'll get it fixed, Uh, but it'll be a painful process. We're walking into big changes. We're walking into lots and lots of changes, and most of it is as yet unknown. We can't see it from here. We can't see the texture and shape of it. So, we saw last week, we can't really prepare for what we will do in, these, in this time of unforeseen change because it's unforeseen. We can't see how things will be. So the premise of the lesson is, well then let's prepare by becoming the kind of people who are able to thrive in seasons of tumult and thrive in seasons of change. People who can flourish and adapt and navigate historical moments like the one into which we're born. So we explored last week two old-timey words, uh, surrender and yield, which we saw have a different meaning now in our current use of language than they did when they were initiated. They don't mean giving up. They don't mean conceding. They don't mean being passive, and they don't mean being defeatist. But What they do mean is not ramrodding preconceived outcomes, but instead allowing for emerging possibilities possibilities that cannot be seen in the moment to use more current language we might phrase those words by saying being present in the moment or not resisting the reality that is or something like that and it really is a description of a spiritual posture that is critical for times of unforeseeable change a discerning posture a listening patiently posture watching for new possibilities to emerge posture taking our own dog out of the fight so that we can see clearly what's going on without our own drivenness our own vested interests there's an old zen saying that says to approach our lives with an empty cup that's the expression an empty cup because a cup that is full of preconceptions uh, a cup that is full of investment in some particular outcome cannot receive anything new, cannot receive an emerging possibility. The yet unseen cannot become seen because full cup. So, That's where we ended up last week. We're going to pick up there today. That's a quick recap. Here uh, here are the questions that we're going to be talking about after the lesson. Uh, Give you some time to be thinking about them. Again, this week, we're going to be looking for real life examples. What does it look like when the desire, plan, execute, habit, when that paradigm goes awry? Because if we can see where it goes awry, forewarned is forearmed. So be thinking as the lesson goes on, where have I seen that pattern? Where do I see it in myself? Where do I see it in other people? And then the last question is, how can we begin to train ourselves to notice when we should desire, plan, execute? It's such a well-rehearsed pattern in our heads. It applies in so many ways and we do it so much. It's very difficult to not go there at the other times when we shouldn't. And so we could be thinking about how do we train ourselves to know and discern the difference. Okay, so imagine it's November 30th, 1913. It's the day before Henry Ford starts rolling his first assembly line. Now, you and I on that day in 1913, we already know about cars, Uh, Maybe we've even seen one. We've heard about them. Uh, But what we don't know on November 30th, 1913, is how the assembly line is going to fundamentally change our lives and our society by dramatically cutting costs, uh, how it is going to integrate the automobile seamlessly into our lives and into our society this brand new thing, this cost-cutting mechanism, is going to make available to us things that we cannot yet imagine. The implications of the coming change in that moment are as yet unforeseen, unforeseeable, because it's a new thing that cannot yet be imagined. We couldn't see how the automobile is going to homogenize the regional differences in our nation, We couldn't see how it's going to upend who we know, where we live, how we even defined family. We couldn't see on that day in November 30th, how the automobile would change how we buy and sell and what will be available to buy and sell and how our tastes would change because we would be exposed to different things. We couldn't see how the automobile would change how we date and how we fall in love and how we have sex and how we marry, and how we raise children. We couldn't see any of that. Nobody could. It was a yet unforeseen reality. It was the day before the assembly line started rolling. Well, Last week, I suggested that our moment, when we get to live on this earth, presents to us even more change than that. So... How do we become the kind of people who can thrive and flourish and grow and adapt and change course and rethink and revamp all, tho- all internal capacities that are necessary in times of change like ours? How do we become those kind of people? So last week in the first what are you thinking question, we were looking for times when desire, plan, execute... When that pattern is really helpful because there are a lot of times when desire, plan, execute is extraordinarily helpful. We make plans. We do. And when we do, we expect to achieve outcomes. We do. And then when we face resistance, we tend to push against that resistance to get through to the other side. We do. And that is human life. It's how we get through school, we saw during the question time. It's how we persist until we have healthy families and healthy relationships. It's how we raise healthy kids. We do the desire, plan, execute, habit pattern. So we have got to see how integrated that pattern is in our lives because when something is that helpful in that many contexts, we tend to apply it across the board. We apply that principle everywhere, always. And many times we're doing the exact same thing that we were doing when it was helpful and it becomes harmful. To do the exact same thing that we did that made our lives work in a different context can actually harm our lives. That's one of the reasons that discernment becomes so challenging. Because to discern, We have to let go of a mindset. We have to let go of a posture that in so many contexts is the exact same posture that makes life work. So we could be forgiven, perhaps. It's an easy trap to fall in because it's a thing that we do all day, every day. It's woven into the minute-by-minute experience of our lives but it's a subtle shift from this pattern, this innate capacity that we have to a story that we begin to tell ourselves. Without noticing that we've done it, we can shift a story from, I have this capacity to do this thing to putting ourselves at the center of responsibility for all things in all ways, in all contexts. Now, we would never say that story out loud, but we can make that shift in our visceral understanding of our lives. It's because it doesn't work, and we would know that it doesn't work, that we don't tend to articulate that story outside, out, out loud. We don't say to ourselves, I am responsible for all things, because we would recognize it if we did. If we said the words out loud, we would say, that's crazy. But in our guts, we tend to make ourselves masters of the universe, carriers of all responsibility. Here's a pithy little saying you might have run into along the way. If it is to be, it's up to me. If it is to be, it's up to me. Now we know better. We know that we don't carry ultimate responsibility for all things. We know that this new world that is waiting to emerge is not all on us. We know that. But there's a difference between what we know and what we feel. Because we do feel like, if it is going to be, it is up to me. Which is yet another of many that we've seen. It's another truth that just isn't true enough. It is true that we have agency. We do. It is true that we have capacity. Yes, we do. It is true that we can make plans and execute those plans and persist and overcome obstacles. We can do all of that. It is true. It's true that we often underestimate what one person can do when they put their minds to it. Yep, that is also true. But these things are only true in some ways, in some contexts, and we tend to universalize that to apply viscerally to all things in all contexts. Because they're true so often, planning and executing and persisting and outcome achieving, they exist in so many places, it's easy to slip from that ability to the crushing weight of expectation that we must make our world work, and it's all on us. Parents are particularly prone to this application error because there's a lot of things that parents do that shape outcomes in their children's lives. That's true. So it's easy to slip into the error of carrying all the weight of every outcome of every choice, especially when our kids make bad choices and to feel like it is all on us. So here's our problem. We've got an everyday normal human pattern that is deeply integrated into our lives And we tend to extrapolate way beyond its helpful application and to tell ourselves a faulty story that we carry more responsibility for outcomes than we can possibly carry counterintuitively that tendency to overestimate our capacity is one of the things that actually gets in the way of our ability to actually execute change in the world around us. It's one of the things that inhibits us from participating in the emerging possibilities that are waiting for us on the other side, uh, size of this uh, change dynamic that's going on around us. One of the primary impediments to holding a watchful posture and participating in the emerging possibilities is our own state of internal anxiety, our own state of internal anxiety. Now, you know, anxiety is at epidemic proportions in our society right now. There's a lot of good reasons. Broken community is not uh, the least among them. But one of the drivers of our collective anxiety is this very thing. We are not very good at noticing when we should push for a preconceived outcome and when we should not when we should instead sit still and watch and listen and discern. So I want to illustrate this dynamic that we started introducing last week with two stories today. The first, a time we tripped right into misapplying this dynamic, and the second, a time when someone did not. The first happened in our community in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. We... Uh, had a, we were profoundly impacted by the crisis as a community. Uh, One third of our households in our whole congregation were either uh, affected by unemployment or underemployment. A third of us. We had a lot of tech folks and we had some particular companies that were heavily represented in our congregation and those companies were hard hit in the triangle. So a third of our households. So you can imagine <coughs> I met with a lot of people who were undergoing a lot of pain. A threat to one's livelihood, that'll do it. So I was meeting with people who were facing the very real possibility maybe we're going to lose our home, who were watching their savings be depleted very quickly, wondering, will our money run out before we find a new job? Uh, Several people who had just had to spend their kid's college fund in order to stay afloat during the time. And after I had met with just a handful of those folks, I began to notice a pattern. To a person, they blamed themselves for their predicament. Now, when we got together, we could talk about credit default swaps. When we got together, we could talk about the housing bubble. When we got together, we could talk about unfair mortgage uh, processes. We could talk about the overnight credit being uh, frozen. We could talk about all the things, but when we got to the thing under the thing, they all knew somebody Who had not lost their job. And because they knew somebody that had not lost their job, the story that they were telling themselves was, well, if that person has a job and I do not have a job, and if it is to be, it's up to me, then there must be something wrong with me. Because if it is to be, it's up to me. Now, when I would say that out loud to them, repeating back what they'd uh, heard, what I'd heard them say, they would kind of know it wasn't true. It was a numbers game really. 10% of all jobs in our nation went away like overnight. In some industries the rate was higher and in your company, I said, higher still. But even though they could talk about it being a national crisis and they could talk about it being a numbers game, they felt a sense of personal failing. Now, it couldn't be clear in that particular episode that this was not personal failing. Uh, Even they could see this was not just my personal failing. But it's so deeply ingrained in us, this story we tell ourselves, that it began to, the story, generate a tremendous amount of anxiety, a tremendous amount of self recrimination. And by the way, all of that anxiety and all of that self recrimination then began to be part of the problem that kept a new possible future from emerging because you do anxiety long enough and you start to shut down. We don't do our best thinking when we are under the sway of self recrimination. So that would get in the way of being able to discern a wise and prudent course of action. All of that pressure, all of that anxiety consumed a whole lot of system resources. Well, to be the kind of people who are going to be able to navigate times of such change we are going to have to be able to have the internal skill set of disentangling ourselves from deeply embedded societally shared narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves and that we tell ourselves about the world and how we try and control the known knowns and the unknown unknowns the second story comes from this book, had a different outcome. Uh, Dr. Mike uh, suggests that I read this book some time ago. And uh, by the way, uh, just a small note, not part of the lesson, about us moving. Um, it's starting to look good that we are going to find a place. We have two possibilities out there. Both are still confirming with their deacons, but their ministers are both feeling very confident. One of those looks extremely better than the other in terms of time and space and location. So it's kind of, we're down to one potential place and we're still waiting to hear back from three or four others. So it's looking good. Well, I say that because I'm going to miss being here with Dr. Mike. (laughs) Because he's kind of become my friend. And we spend a lot of time talking about stuff. I just went over there. We were talking this morning about how things are going. Well, anyway, he told me about this book. And in it, the author told a story about a family who was processing the diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's with their sister-in-law. Two of the siblings and their families had two very different responses to the diagnosis. Both families had deep love for their sister, both families had a deep felt sense of responsibility, a deep felt sense of duty to the family, but one of the family defaulted to the drive for an outcome approach. So after the shock of the diagnosis, they went into action mode. Uh, They were determined to fight against the disease, determined really to fight against the diagnosis. So they got a second opinion and then they got another second opinion and then another and then another and then another searching just a little bit frenetically for some doctor who would tell them something different from the diagnosis that they had received. And then even during the treatment phase, they began to fight over protocols because they kept pushing for a way to not have to accept this awful, awful news on behalf of their sister. They did feel a deep love for her, and they wanted dearly to have a positive outcome for her, which seems admirable, fighting for a loved one, except it was exhausting and it was stressful. And it led to lots and lots of conflict within their own family, but also with the medical folks. Uh, Their approach created a tremendous amount of interior anxiety. And interior anxiety comes out in actions and words. And it was just exhausting. But that's where you go when, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Now, again, that's the truth and it's true but it's often not true enough. And it turns out it's a truth that doesn't apply to the diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. So over time, family number one got more and more anxious, less and less present to a possible moment that could have been emerging in the aftermath of the diagnosis. But siblings family number two, they did their approach captured those two old-timey spiritual words, yielding and surrender. Once their sister's diagnosis was confirmed a second time, one of the family members said, you know, it was actually a relief because we knew something was going on and I was carrying a little bit of concern for her. Now we know what we're dealing with. We didn't know what it was before. It had been alarming for some time. Now we know what we're dealing. Now, what they didn't do was get passive. What they didn't do was become defeatist. But what they did do was accept the situation as the situation was. And they did work to become present in the moment as the moment was. One brother said, we didn't choose this disease, it chose us. But we chose it back. And we chose to find in it what it had to teach us, what it had to show us, what it had for us about ourselves and about one another and about our emerging future. And because they took that watchful, patient, listening, observing posture, they were able to approach the situation together. They were able to make decisions together. They were able to do it in a non-anxious way, in a way that did not fall prey to habit thinking and habit emotion and habit reaction. They were able to make decisions about where their finances would go, make decisions about where their sister would live and what they would do as the disease began to progress over time. And because they took this posture early on, they were able to make these decisions in a non-anxious way and include their sister while she still had the capacity to participate in the process. One approach, fighting what is. The other uh, approach, not. One approach, if it is to be, it is up to me. The other, watchful and yielding to what is, finding the peace necessary to be able to discern in the situation what the situation is and how best to move and respond in that. The first approach shuts off discernment, the second opens us to discernment. A truth that is helpful in one context, drive for outcomes, that same truth turns harmful in another context. And so to be the kind of people who are going to be able to navigate the change that is set forward in our lifetimes, we're going to have to be people who are able to discern when each one applies. We're going to have to be people who are capable of being internally present, non-anxious, watchful, discerning. That's how we allow the unseen, unforeseeable to emerge. That's how we are able to participate in bringing forth as yet unseen possibilities. That's how we move into a future that we cannot see. And so in dwelling divine, may that be us. Watchful and listening and discerning, able to step back when it's appropriate to step back. Step back back from our driving for an outcome habits. May that be so. Amen. We'd love to connect with you in real life, org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well being of the community, we all contribute online. You find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. commonthreadchurch.org org slash newcomer. And if you